Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. I'm Rosie and hi I'm Kathy and today we're talking about Asabattle and the Master Stirworm which is an Arcadian folktale and it's quite a ride. Yeah there aren't as many variants of it as the Kaliach that we looked at last time but there's a lot of variation in terms of the amount of detail that gets included so that's mm. really what we're going to be discussing. Yeah um and we'd just like to say um if there's any cat noises in this podcast or <laughs> music because our upstairs neighbors decided that between 8 and 10 p.m was a good time to play electric guitar um we apologize for that but that's what that is <laughs> we hope it brings you a sense of ambiance there's really nothing else we can do um and we do apologize <laughs> Long ago, in an ancient kingdom, lived a farm boy named Asipatil. His six brothers spent their days working the farm with their father, but Asipatil merely lay in the ashes by the peat fire, his head full of stories and sagas of which he envisioned himself the hero. His family mocked his stories and loathed him for his laziness, but Asipatil only continued to lie by the fire, unperturbed by the thick ash covering him. Only his sister was kind to him, but she soon left to work in the royal palace, and Asipatil was alone. One day, a terrible evil reached the shores of the kingdom, the Master Stirworm, king of all sea monsters. Ships crumpled before the lash of his tail, and with one sweep of his tongue he could level cities and devour nations. But worst of all, his breath was a poison deadly to all living things. He laid his great head in the shallows and opened his maw. At a loss for what to do, the king took his wife's advice and sought the guidance of Spaman, a wizard, who told him that in order to appease the Stirworm, the people must feed its seven maidens at dawn every Saturday. And so it was done, and the stirworm's wrath was kept at bay. Yet he did not leave, and the people quickly grew resistant to giving up any more of their daughters. The king sought the wisdom of the spaman a second time, and the spaman told him that in order to truly appease the stirworm, the king would need to feed it the loveliest maiden in the land, his own daughter, the princess Jamda Lovely. Heart heavy, the king agreed, but was given a few weeks' grace to prepare himself. The king used the time to scour the land for a hero who might save his daughter from this terrible fate, promising that such a man would be given the kingdom, the king's legendary sword Sickersnapper, which had once belonged to Odin, and the princess's hand in marriage. Far away, on a distant farm, the news reached Asipatil, and he knew at once what he must do. Asipatil's father owned the swiftest horse in the land, Teetgum, and he had once overheard his father telling his mother that in order to attain the horse's full speed, the rider must blow through a goose's thrapple. So Asipatil took a smouldering clod of peat from his fire, carried in a bucket, stole the goose's thrapple from his father's coat pocket, and was off into the night on Teetgum's back. 
two claps on the shoulder and Tikang was flying across the land, but Aspatl took the goose's thrapple and blew, and with another burst of speed they were swifter than the wind. The air whipped the ash from Aspatl's clothes and it streamed behind them in sooty grey banners. Despite this, Aspatl did not reach the stirworm until the dawn of the last day. By now the king had grown desperate and had come to the shore with his great sword, planning to face the monster himself. As the sun rose, the stirworm began to yawn, water rushing into its mouth, and before the king or his attendants could react, Asipatl had leapt into the little boat and pushed out onto the water. The currents dragged Asipatl and the boat straight into the stirworm's cavernous mouth, and then down, down into the dark of its belly. The boat grounded, and Asipatl knew he had but little time before the stirworm yawned again. He jumped from the boat, and Pete in hand ran faster than he'd ever run in his life. On and on he went until at last he reached the stirworm's liver, larger than a mountain, and oilier than all the fish in the sea. With a large knife he sliced open the creature's liver and shoved the smouldering peat inside. Then he blew, blew, and blew on the peat. Finally it took light. With a spit and a crackle the monster's liver caught fire, and soon the blaze spread. Asipatl ran back to his boat, and just as he clambered inside the stirworm gave a huge wretch. In one motion, Asipatl and his boat were thrown out into the open air on a tide of brine. The stirworm screamed and writhed in agony, smoke billowing from its mouth. Its tongue caught on the horns of the moon but slipped and fell, cleaving Norway and Sweden from Finland. It tossed and thrashed, and with each throw of anguish, teeth fell from its mouth. The first became the Orkney Isles, the second the Shetland Isles, and the last the Faroe Isles. Then, finally, the master stirworm coiled its body up into a tight knot, and breathed its last breath. Its body became what would one day be Iceland, and it is said the volcanoes and hot springs of that land are evidence that deep below the surface the stirworm is still burning. As for Asipatl, the king named him his heir, and all rejoiced. It was discovered that the queen had taken the Spaman as her lover, and this was the only reason she had urged her husband to heed his cruel advice. For this she was banished, and Asipatl took the Spaman's life with Sicker Snapper as penance for the evil he had sown. A week later, Asipatl was married to Princess Jandalovli in a celebration the likes of which the kingdom had never seen, and would never see again. He was reunited with his sister, who became the princess's lady-in-waiting, and he even found it in his heart to forgive his cruel brothers. Each night, Jandalovli would rest her head on Asipatl's chest, and listen to his soft voice weave legend and folk tales into being. Asipatl grew into a wise and noble king, and they were happy until the end of their days. That was Asipatl and the Master Stirworm, which, despite not being from Orkney, I did hear growing up, because um, my parents liked to read me folk tales. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a childhood story for me. What are your thoughts? My first thought when we came to it was um, actually just that Asipatl and the Master Stirworm were both incredibly weird words that I hope <laughs> <laughs> I hoped we'd find a good Scots translation for because I yeah. didn't really know where they were coming from, um, and especially since Asipatl to me the first thing I thought of was um, Ashenputtle because I love the Brothers Grimm and that's just Cinderella in its original German. I mean, this is definitely from the 
sort of the more Norse Germanic side of um, Scottish folklore and culture. Yeah, Asipatl basically is just Cinderella, um, as far as the name is concerned. I found one that was sort of saying like, he, he who rakes ashes, or like, he's just covered in ashes. Yeah, I saw one translation that a folklorist had given him of Cinderlad, which mm. is fine, but I feel like it's a lot less charming than Cinderella, and yeah. you might as well just keep Asipatl as his name, It's if that's his traditional <laughs> one. How do we feel about Cinderchad? <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that is so much better. I correct myself. If he's going to be Cinder anything, it should be Cinder Chad. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's killing monsters. If that doesn't make you a Chad, I don't know what does. I mean, I suppose narratively, other than killing a monster, he does have some parallels with Cinderella, functionally. He does. In the whole marrying a princess and stepping up in the world at the end of his yeah. tale. It's definitely, it's the Cinderella story in the sense of going from like a very sort of lowly place where he doesn't fit in with his family and they hate him and they're mean to finding his place with people who do understand him. I think what is like a little different about this tale is sometimes they really go for how lazy he is. They're like, he deserved to be hated. He was a lazy sod mm. and that's why his brothers hated him. Which doesn't quite lend itself to, like, he now deserves to live as a king. <laughs> yeah. you If you're going to have the heroic younger son who's been underestimated by his family, you usually make it clear that he is being underestimated and has hidden depths and is actually a good person worthy of all of the rewards they'll get at the end of the story. I don't know, Asipatl, I get that you're a dreamer and you're like thinking of sagas and stuff, but it's kind of just not cool to just <laughs> lie there <laughs> while your family does all the farm work. It probably helps explain why in some of the tales the relationship with his brothers is considerably worse. After he has declared that he's going to go and fight the storeworm and save everyone. They're like, of course you won't, you're the runt of the family <laughs> and you just say such stupid things all of the time and yeah. he just insists that he will. So they literally try to murder him. The dad has to stop them and then tell them off for trying to kill their little brother. But I do feel really sorry for him when it says his entire family mocked his, his stories, like even his parents and his mum. <laughs> yeah, and especially the loss of... The sister, who obviously, she has to be removed from the narrative to make him lonelier and give him more motivation to actually do something heroic, and it also means that they can be reunited in the happy ending when he also moves up the socioeconomic ladder. Yeah. But it's a shame for him to lose the one companion that he reliably had. Yeah, so then on Stirworm, uh, Master, Mester, that's just what that is, the sort of king of dragons. On Stur, we have that it could be from Scots, uh, meaning, which usually means dust, but it could also mean to pour um, or to flood. So it could be like the flood worm. Yeah, it's basically very Jormungandr from the Norse. 
if you're not aware, Jormungandr is the world serpent who encircles the earth and is said will sort of rise up from the ocean on the Norse doom day to battle the gods and kill Thor. Um, he also has like he also has venom. That's a big deal. That's what Thor dies of. Yeah, they're definitely related, and it does explicitly say in some versions of the story that the stirworm is big enough to encircle the earth. While I was actually doing some background reading about the potential connections with Scandinavian and Norse stories, I actually saw a suggestion that this could be related to a tsunami um, that was called the Storega uh, (laughs) slide and actually was part of the final submersion of the Doggerland area. And they think this massive wave could eventually have been transformed in cultural memory and tales into Mm. a sea serpent and that that would help explain like the yawning and the like the loss of water and then the sudden expulsion Mm. of it from the mouth of the creature which I thought was really cool I really love hearing about the geographic basis for some folk tales and myths We have the king taking his wife's advice to then seek the advice of a wizard slash spayman. I was thinking about this in general, and we just really want to distance the king from blame, basically. But it would be a much simpler, easy, like easier story, and I've seen it sometimes where they just say it was known that you had to sacrifice seven maidens. I don't think yeah. any of the versions I've read just said that i think all of the ones i've seen the queen tells them to go and talk to someone who is alternatively referred to as a sorcerer or the spayman and he's the one who says yeah we should definitely just deliver up seven maidens every week this absolutely has no downsides or bad consequences (laughs) and will definitely work (laughs) i mean to be fair he doesn't say that he says this probably will work but if not then there's an alternative but it would be too horrible to say <laughs> so I won't until I have to yeah you know fun the man has a flair for the dramatic <laughs> I can respect that I was thinking part of this is about again like the satisfaction of all of the sort of evil in the story being defeated mm-hmm. at the end I think the other part of it is the rightful king is always a good person and wouldn't directly do something like this it was not his fault kind of yeah it's very very easy to make the king a righteous noble person because he's just taking desperate evil advice from the mean sorcerer who we get to kill at the end and his mean wife who might even be the second wife that sometimes again gets killed at the end or at least banished and we get to kill the monster and None of this was the king's fault, even though he was the one in charge. Conservatively, we can argue at least 40 girls have died (laughs) from his community that he is ethically and legally responsible for. I've seen some versions where they get upset because, oh, if you kill all the young girls, no one will take care of us when we're old. 
Like, they're not just um, purely upset because it's not nice to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> That's really sad. Yeah. Um, then we have Spaman then telling the king, sacrifice your daughter, which uh, irked me because we're supposed to be like, oh no, not Princess Jem de Lovely, she's the loveliest maiden of all, oh my god. But like, not to be harsh, but it was kind of her duty to die before all these other women as the like princess who's supposed to be looking after her people. Yeah, we can vaguely forgive her in that she doesn't know, and in the version that I read, as soon as she does know, she does sort of accept her fate nobly and with dignity and whatever. But it just feels like we're really pushing the whole royalty matter more and deserve our protection and affection throughout any kind of problem. In a version I read, the king is given ten weeks grace from like the day they decide his daughter is going to be sacrificed, which means while he's preparing himself to lose his daughter, 70 more women have died. And for me, that's the point <laughs> where you revolt against the king. <laughs> yeah, that's way too much. That also means in that version, we've also had we've had several weeks before mm-hmm. that. You could easily be pushing about a hundred girls mm. are dead, and the king is just like, "Oh God, now it's my daughter. Now I'm gonna try and kill the thing." <laughs> yeah, another potential origin that I thought was very interesting was someone who had suggested that this brand of myths where young girls are offered to generally a sea monster well, potentially comes from a period of time where ritual sacrifices were being phased out by new religions supplanting them, so particularly Christianity in the West, um, and then the dragon sea monster ends up representing the pagan divinities that used to require human sacrifices compared to the nice hero who comes along and saves all of the young maidens and converts everyone to the nice new faith that doesn't require that. So then we've got um, Princess Gem de Lovely. I mean Gem de Lovely. Somehow I feel like it's worse than Belle to drive home that she's a precious, beautiful girl. I would prefer it if her name was actually, like, Gem, Space, The, Space, Lovely. Because then we're just like, she has a name and we want to establish that also she's known for being lovely. Whereas her just full name being Gem to Lovely, that's so much. I've seen some people put dashes between them, so then it looks like a French name. But then again, what is a French princess doing in a Norse tale potentially set in Orkney? I feel like this myth mainly has been added to by a lot of different people and cultures. And that's obviously happens a lot. It's very interesting. But it does make it feel like a bit of a mishmash. I mean, I think like with French influence, generally then we can place that after 1066 basically yeah i mean it could even just be that she received a name yeah much later on um and obviously like you say with all of the courtly romances and stuff Mm. that came out of france 
Just the casual mention that the king has a sword inherited from Odin. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Another <laughs> wonderful piece of history and, and cultural addition <laughs> to the fabric of this tale. Yeah. Um, it is a super common um, thing to, like in Germanic um, Britain, I guess, to have kings be descended from Odin or Woden, pretty much every single Anglo-Saxon king trapped their bloodline back to Woden. So it's definitely in that kind of tradition. I kind of, because I feel like the sword is just, it, a lot of the story it feels like it's just a fun addition, but I guess mm. the thing is, giving that to Asipatl is kind of a symbolic way to legitimise him, because he's now inheriting the thing from Odin, and then it's not just the marriage to the princess, it's like symbolically bringing him into that inheritance, I guess. Yeah, it symbolically gives him the same divine right to rule as the king, even though he was a commoner Yeah, from birth. I think what I do find interesting is that despite being such a storied sword, it's not even then used to kill the monster. No. There's not even a uh, we set the inside of the monster on fire to distract it and then behead it with the magical sword from Odin. If it's not used to kill the sorcerer, it's just it's an just... entirely relevant, interesting thing yeah. to have in the story. I mean, it would be like if Excalibur was never used. Yeah. It's a really strange thing to give someone a weapon that yeah. never sees battle. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's... Not something I've seen in any other myth. I feel like it's similar to Asipatl's dad's magic chorus Tikkung, who's like in the same line of just horses of legend like um, Sleipnir and Pegasus and mm -hmm. only exists in this story. We have no idea why Asipatl's dad has a magic horse. There's no implication he got it from another god or goddess <laughs> or was magically granted to him by the sorcerer. He just has it. Tikkung, for those interested, is a Scots word meaning a flickering scene in the atmosphere, especially in spring, when the heat of the sun causes rapid evaporation. So I guess it's like a shimmer. Um, but it also, looking at the etymology of the word um, and where it's come from and tracing back the Scots with the sort of Middle English and the Old Norse, it also seems to just mean like, go fast. So <laughs> Yeah, I've seen some tellings where clearly the author wanted to have a slightly more dignified name for the horse, <laughs> and they'd rendered it as go swift. Yeah. Um, which feels appropriate for a folktale horse. So then we've got Asipatl uh, arrives at the shore, um, and in some versions the king is rowing out with his men towards the stirworm at this point, and Asipatl gets them to come back um, by pretending he's found gold, and then jumps in their boat as soon as they're out of it. In that version, some of the people around the king also have names, and um, we have like 12 champions who 
were gonna try and kill the stirworm and like some of them tried and some of them just drank away their sorrows and I think I enjoy the stories where some heroes from far and wide come to try mm. their hand it makes it feel more like a traditional tournament for the yes. princess's hand in marriage sort of story and I like the symmetry of the tale, I think one tale that we both read that 36 heroes turn up, 12 of them faint immediately, <laughs> 12 of them run away immediately, and 12 of them stay but just to drink the king's wine because they're <laughs> so sad until Asipatl goes and kills the monster. So they're a complete waste of space. Um, but it helps to, well, drive home how desirable the three rewards are of the princess sword and the mm. kingdom and also how intimidating this sea monster is yeah so then the other thing is i think the presence of the other sort of i guess suitors slash um champions they kind of they can kind of place emphasis on the fact that sort of only asipatl can defeat the stirworm mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure other people have seen a peak fire but like have they lain in it every day for their entire life? No. So <laughs> have they spent all of that time considering how they would kill a dragon if they were ever faced with the task? How they would be an incredible <laughs> hero of legend? Again, probably not. Probably not. So with like a lot of hero versus dragon stories, um, there's a big emphasis on brain versus brawn. Mm. There's usually some weak spot that needs to be found or like some trick that's played it makes me like we can talk about um stories that are similar to this one later but it even made me think of Sigurd and the dragon which is a really really different story but the point is this that the hero outsmarts the dragon by he digs a trench and then waits for the dragon to crawl over it and then stabs its underbelly but again it's just you outsmart the dragon you find a weak spot there's no, like, we're not just facing this dragon in battle. It always has to be some kind of trick. I think it's interesting that in the myths, the moral that we're trying to drive home, it seems to me, is you can trust the information that you already have, the skills you have from your normal life, to defeat this dragon, and you'll come safely home, and you'll be successful, and you'll be rewarded for this. It's quite, like it's quite a reassuring thing to tell yeah. children, like they're already equipped to deal yeah. with the scary monster that's going to just appear in their life one day. And we have Asipatl is swallowed by the stirworm, I guess. Um, and it is described that he is um, sailing through it or being carried through it on the current for miles and miles until the boat grounds, which I guess is just another emphasis of how massive this thing is. Like the moment when its tongue catches on the moon, the moon, that's just very... By the way, guys, this thing is, is huge. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about how big it was because we were looking at the map and the Baltic Sea that yes. supposedly its tongue forms. Yeah. This 
Second <laughs> is massive. Yeah, you can see the Baltic Sea, how it is shaped like a serpent's tongue. And honestly, if the serpent was that big, I don't think we'd even really be able to see it. It would, um, like it would fade into the atmosphere. <laughs> it would also require more than seven maidens a week. <laughs> it's so big. Um, so going into the belly of the beast again is a pretty traditional mm. part of the hero's quest. Yeah. Uh, I think I've seen people who say it's a parallel to part of an of the ancient epics where the hero would have a trip through the underworld and mm. then you have a spiritual transformation as you come out the other mm. side and you're finally a fully fledged psychologically mature hero and then in this case i guess the belly of the beast is very literal if you want to look it in a look at it in a kind of jungian way you would say it's like a journey into the unconscious to face the yeah. inner demons kind of thing so after this then asipatil is married so then in this method of looking things men have a female anima and women have a male animus so that kind of union of male and female is part of the kind of sex, like self-actualization and becoming who you were meant to be and that kind of thing. And that's what this traditional reading says is the basis for pretty much every folktale we have. It's about the two parts of the self becoming one and whole and how that creates order and prosperity and true happiness for the whole community and themselves. So I think the peat is key thing with the liver. I think the fact that fish livers are oily is kind of a thing that normal people would be expected to know. They'd be expected to make that connection. They'd be like, well, obviously, obviously he's going to burn the liver. Um, or like when he does it, it's meant to be, well, of course, because fish liver is really oily. Yeah, we were discussing how premeditated his plan can mm -hmm. be to defeat the, the storeworm, because in this version of the tale that Rosie read out, he takes the peat with him from his parents' house. In a version I read, he gets to the seaside and just robs it from a cottage uh, in, where an old woman is asleep. He just maybe gets some divine stroke of inspiration there or just thinks maybe this will be useful so I'll take it along with me, which is a more I think like grim mm. version of a folktale where the hero just has all of these things and then there's a sudden moment where they're useful and the hero kind of goes, oh yeah I have something that could help me here, rather than it actually yeah. being a well-thought-out idea. I think I prefer your version of it, where yeah. it's certainly implied that he knows what he's going to go and do. Yeah, I think I find those versions just slightly more satisfying because it's the payoff for him being the ash boy and lying in front of this peat fire. It's the payoff for him already being obsessed with legends and sagas and defeating monsters. Mm -hmm. You can imagine that he's been like lying by the fire thinking, you know, if that if that stirworm ever shows up, do you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get some peat and I'm gonna burn its liver. Yeah, it's more hidden depths. It's you've underestimated how smart and resourceful 
this younger son is and they're two characteristics again that you very traditionally give the little boy who becomes mm. the big hero of the tale so next we have the death of the stirworm where we very quickly switch into this is how the world was created <laughs> i think the variations that i've seen that interest me a lot is that if this tale is set in Orkney then obviously the dragon uh, the storeworm's teeth don't make Orkney that would be <laughs> very backwards. So I kind of wonder if the reason it's sometimes set in Orkney is because it's an Orcadian tale mm -hmm. um, but yeah I kind of thought the point of it is that they're explaining where their islands came from. Yeah, the discrepancy between having it forming Orkney sometimes and sometimes being set on Orkney certainly feels like it was taken over and then adapted and became Orcadian rather than mm -hmm. originated there. I mean, it's definitely, like you can say, it's definitely clearly a um, Norse tale or a Viking tale, Scandinavian tale. What this tale requires is knowledge that Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Iceland exist. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically places that the Vikings came from or went to that we're talking about. I think it's also a lot more interesting for you as a culture, you know, that lives in Norway to have a reason why all of a sudden someone's reporting that there's new islands that they've mm -hmm. just been to across the sea. Yeah. It's a lot more feasible that you would come up with an origin myth that killed your great evil serpent of law mm -hmm. and the teeth then fell out of it to form some islands that your cool Viking band just came back from. Yeah. There's some kind of um progression in like what the beliefs are um definitely like it could be time and it could be distance but obviously in the original sagas um Jormungandr is not just getting killed by a random farm farm boy he's gonna like get killed by a god and kill that god in turn kind of thing so it's a kind of evolution that you see with a lot of older um folk figures or monsters they become smaller and less um, important uh, as time goes on until like they're just an odd character or an odd monster as opposed to a central god or aspect to mythology. So then it's discovered that um, the queen and the spayman have betrayed us all. I read one version where it was just like, oh, that spayman, what an evil idiot, banish him. And then the king made sure to never listen to the advice of his foolish wife again. The first version of it that I read actually gave Asipatl's sister a slightly more plot-relevant role in that she comes and finds everyone once the princess has been safely rescued and they're all on the way back to the castle and she says, I mean, you won't believe what the Queen and the Spayman have been doing all morning while you've all been crying about the princess going to her death. And when they found out, then they they ran away and we'll never be able to catch up with them and they'll get away with this. 
And then that's when Teet Gong again becomes useful and relevant and Atipato says, I can definitely catch up. And then he goes off and kills at least the Spayman. I think, does he ever kill the queen in versions that you've seen? I'm going to say yes. I think she does die sometimes. I think mm. they're both executed sometimes. I, I've certainly seen her be executed, but I don't think I've ever actually seen Asipato kill her. Yeah, I've not seen a direct like reference to Asipato himself killing her. Um, I can kind of see why we wouldn't. I don't think, as a culture, we love our hero to kill women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bloodthirsty as well in this context where it would be tough to to argue that she'd done enough to deserve that kind yeah. of comeuppance. I think you're satisfied enough if she's just banished or arrested for the rest of her life. She doesn't need to die as well. Mm. So then, um, Asipato and Jem de Lovely are married and they live happily ever after. And it was really, it was just, um, the, like, it was just the one version I read that like explicitly said that she liked hearing him tell the legends and the folk tales, but I just thought it was like really um nice as to emphasize the um he's found his true place in the world. It's again about pushing that reassurance that the qualities that have made him special and made him able to defeat the Storeworm are kind of finally recognised and valued. Okay, so what do you think is your takeaway? What are your final thoughts <laughs> on Asipato and the Mester's Storeworm? <laughs> I mean... I still feel like it's quite a weird tale amongst, like, in books of Scottish mythology. Um, but yeah, that is because we do have a huge mix of cultural influences. Um, but yeah, um, I think I think my favourite bit about, about it is um, just all the layers of um, sort of uh, hands and mouths and time and cultures that this tale has gone through to get to where it is. Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite enjoyable. Yeah, it feels well loved. Yeah, very well loved tale. Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that seeks to tell the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at www.folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info@folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts today were Rosie and Cathy. Many thanks to Taylor and Joanne for conducting research and writing the story for this episode.
This week's intro music was Hidden Past by Kevin MacLeod. And many thanks to Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.